If the Gospel according to John were a movie, it would have ended with chapter 20, from which we've heard over the past two weeks. Mary Magdalene finds Jesus alive and well near the open tomb. He appears to the disciples in the locked upper room, saying, Peace be with you. The following week, he appears to doubting Thomas, who cries when he sees him, My Lord and my God. Chapter 20 ends with these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. End of movie. Except we then have chapter 21, from which we've just heard this morning. It feels like a coda to the story, tacked on, haunting, melancholy, and quiet. A simple breakfast by the seashore at dawn after a night of fishing. For a long time and for no reason I can comprehend, I have always pictured the events of this chapter in my mind's eye, playing out on a movie screen as the credits roll. The story's over. Its dramatic arc is resolved. And today's vignette is like an unnecessary appendage. And yet when you look a little closer, it gently offers us one last time the central message of all the Gospels. Seven of the remaining 11 disciples go fishing. Why aren't all of them together? Have they already dispersed? despite having seen their teacher and Lord resurrected from the dead? And why go fishing? Wasn't that their old way of life? The one Jesus upended when he showed up? It feels a little like having seen the whole world, they've now gone back to their tiny hometown to live out their quiet days. As if the life-shattering events of the preceding three years hadn't happened at all. And there they are, back at square one again. Or maybe now that Jesus was gone, they didn't know what else to do with themselves. I'm going fishing, Simon Peter says. We will go with you, say the others. All night long they cast their nets, catching nothing, until a stranger on the seashore calls out to them, suggesting they cast to starboard. And they haul in 153 fish. Instantly, John realizes that the stranger on shore is Jesus. He tells Peter, who oddly puts on some clothes and jumps into the water, (laughs) swimming to shore. Now, some biblical scholars make a big deal out of the fact that Peter was naked in the boat and then put on clothes to jump in the water and meet Jesus. They say this echoes Adam and Eve, who were unselfconscious, before biting the apple, but then ashamed of their nakedness afterwards, adding fig leaves to their private parts. Who told you that you were naked, God asks them. I don't know how much to make of this comparison with Peter and Adam and Eve, but one thing does seem clear. The disciples are awkward and almost shy around the resurrected Jesus. He's still their teacher and master, but this supernatural turn of events, this resurrection, has them uncomfortable. So maybe Peter puts clothes on out of respect for someone who is now more God 
than friend. Come have breakfast, Jesus says. There's something sweet and tender in this invitation. As they gather around the campfire, a few of them surely recall the feeding of the 5,000 as they pass around the loaves and fish. Then, because it's already awkward, so what the heck, Jesus turns to Simon Peter and asks him three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Peter answers each time, to which Jesus counters, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. These instances of threes call to mind the last time Peter's love for Jesus was tested. He didn't do so well then, as the cock crow attested. And so these questions on the shore of the Sea of Tiberias are perhaps Jesus' way of letting Peter know, it's okay. I know what you did was out of fear, and I know that you love me. I forgive you. He undoes each of Peter's three denials by eliciting from him three admissions of his truer feelings. Even so, shame lingers for Peter. Ernest Hemingway wrote a short story called The Capital of the World, in which a father is trying to find his wayward son before he goes even further astray. It takes place in Madrid, and in his desperation, the father puts an ad in the city's newspaper that reads, Paco, meet me at the Hotel Montana at noon on Tuesday. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Paco was such a common name in Spain that when the father goes to the hotel at the appointed time, there are 800 young men waiting for their fathers, longing for forgiveness. In today's gospel story, Paco is another name for Peter. And Peter is another name for Kathy. Peter is another name for Pat. Peter is another name for... For Betty Ann. We, so many of us, share that need for restoration, forgiveness, and fresh starts. There is some theological controversy regarding the exchange between Jesus and Peter, of course. (laughs) The first two times that Jesus asks Peter, Do you love me? he uses the Greek word agape the highest and purest form of love, one that is divine and reveals the essence of God. But Peter replies both times with the Greek word philio, basically saying, yes, Lord, you know we're friends. Think Philadelphia, philos, the city of brotherly love, of friendship, as opposed to divine, all-encompassing love. So philia was kind of a step down from agape, and... Jesus is saying, do you agape me like this? And Peter's like, yeah, we're pals. (laughs) It might be that Peter still feels unworthy to participate in such a love as Jesus requests of him. Or maybe he's just not ready to commit to all that agape love requires. So the third time Jesus asks him, he comes down to Peter's comfort level and says, okay, Peter, do you have filio for me? which then makes Peter sad 
because all along he kind of really did want the agape love. But he still responds, yes, Lord, I have filio for you. You already know that. What Jesus is trying to get Peter to realize is that he's really going to need agape-level love to withstand all that's about to come his way in the name of proclaiming Jesus Christ. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and to go wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. But Peter is not yet ready to hear it. I said that this little story, told as the credits roll, was one last gentle reminder of the central message in all the Gospels, and that is this. In the end, what truly matters is relationship, is love. Every kind of love, the love of God, the love of friendship, and the love of humankind. And even though we tend to stumble much like Peter has throughout all four of the Gospels, we too are forgiven. John's Gospel is the last of the four that was written, and it's the last in order in our Bible. So after four books filled with miracles healings, parables, wise men, shepherds, Pharisees, Samaritans, demons, tax collectors, prostitutes, casting out money changers, raising the dead and being resurrected in a gospel with a cosmic prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. After all that, we end with this quiet, seashore breakfast among friends. This little scene is a microcosm of what matters most to God. And now, today, here, for us, after all the drama of Holy Week, the shame, pain, and sorrow, and even after all the exultation of Easter, we have returned to our everyday life, to our own versions of fishing because we do not know how to incorporate resurrection into our own lives. The answer is simply, we must quietly love. And we must remember that we are now shepherds tending to others in Jesus' place in his name. The realization of resurrection does not arrive in drama or exultation. It arrives in the mundane, the quiet, the empty shore where a simple meal can also be a miracle and where questions of love are answered by acceptance of call. And if that means that sometimes you can no longer go wherever you wish like when you were younger but are summoned to Christ to places in your heart and in your world that you'd rather avoid, then you're doing your discipleship the right way. Maybe when we die and go to heaven, it won't at all be like the pearly gates with Peter at the entrance checking our name off a list. Maybe as the credits roll on our life story, 
It will be a quiet breakfast with Jesus at the shore of the sea. And having already forgiven us, he will ask us two simple questions. Did you love me? And did you follow me?